<clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. My mum was working as an auxiliary nurse in a nursing home. And I remember her coming back one day and she was called a nignog um, by a, a co-worker. We were exposed to that ignorance from quite a young age. That's Chris Greatwich, one of the first foreign-trained members of the Philippine national football team. Chris and his family are pioneering fixtures in Filipino football. Now the director of the Kaya FC Football Academy and creator and host of the popular podcast Across the Line, he is transforming lives on and off the pitch. Chris and I had so much to talk about that our conversation turned into a three-episode series. Today, in part one, we dissect his formative days in England and his early experiences realizing he had more than his English roots. This is Partially Pinoy, and we are powered by Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics. So I'll start with the question I always get when people find out I'm Filipino-Iranian. It's, how did your parents meet? So let's start there, Chris. How did your parents meet? Yeah, okay, so my, my, my family background is my father is English, my mother is Filipina. Generally how it works with the uh, Philippine national team, most of the mothers are Filipinas, right? And like kind of most Filipinas, like just very um, migrant, right? they like to travel. Um, my mother ended up moving to the UK in the uh, early 80s and met my father in a hospital. Uh, my, my dad was working uh, as a hospital porter at the time. Yeah, that, that's how it started. So yeah, a, a pretty traditional way of, of uh, uh, meeting in a hospital, which is um, pretty much part of the course with a lot of uh, the Filipino community who have kids of mixed heritage. So uh, yeah, that's how they met initially in London, which is where I was born. Uh, and then we moved to a town about an hour south, which is called uh, Lewis, which is near Brighton on the south coast of the UK. And then my father's father was a prison officer. So he actually moved around quite a lot as a young teenager. So one of his stations was actually in Lewis, which has a, a large prison. So although my father had moved to London to, and, and that's where we went, met my mum, it wasn't exactly the ideal place to, to bring up uh, a young family. So Sussex is, well, it's made famous now because Meghan Markle is the um, Duchess of Sussex, but it's quite a, uh, a, a nice place, I would say, to, to grow up. It's, it's got the, the greenery of the South Downs, which is, which is very picturesque. Uh, it's close enough to, to London and Brighton is also quite a big city, which is nearby, but probably a little less kind of hustle and bustle that you would find if you had to kind of grow up in a, in a large metropolis like London. So that's where I grew up. Do you do you now have a sense of what it was about the other that made your parents feel connected? Like in my case, actually, my mom is Iranian, kind of the rare combo of a Filipino dad. And, you know, oh, my really? mom, mm-hmm, my last name is Jerusalem, which is very Filipino, if you know anything about the Philippines. But people think of it as being a Middle Eastern last name, of course, for good reason. And so then they somehow connect that to Iran. But you know, my, my dad's actually Filipino. What I know is that, you know, my mom always had a fascination with anything foreign. Anything outside of Iran was something she was very interested in. And so thinking back to the 80s in, in England, I know about like race relations in the U.S. There's a lot of tension. Like what, 
what even kind of led that union to happening? Do you, do you know their story of, of that, that piece of it? No, I, I think you, I, I agree with what you're saying with, I think Filipinos have a tendency, they, they like to, um, obviously there's a big obsession with the US, you know, US television, um, you know, they, they watch obviously the US movies and, and it creates this image of what it would be like to, to live in another country. So I think that that's quite prominent within the community. And even myself growing up, you know, I would watch Friends or other, you know, American um, television shows that, made me want to move to, to America, specifically New York, actually. And that's why we, uh, we ended up moving there. I, I think there is always that element of it with, with Filipinos wanting to, I don't think specifically it was England that necessarily was you know, the attraction. It was just obviously the opportunity to, to move abroad and, and obviously have an adventure and probably look to seek a better life for herself. And then obviously as a byproduct of that, met, met my father and obviously fell in love and had kids. So I, I don't think it was necessarily like this desire to meet this English guy, you know, a Hugh Grant type character, you know, that he often plays in this, in this, in this movie that's like the stereotypical British guy, because my father is definitely not that person. Yeah, a little, little bit different to perhaps how you might envisage it in, in your mind when you, when you meet an English guy as, as a Filipina. But yeah, nonetheless, you know, we, we had a really enjoyable upbringing and um, yeah, different yeah. to how you'd imagine it in like a Notting Hill or, you know, one of those types of movies. Yeah, I was going to ask, is your dad anything like Hugh Grant? And sounds like he isn't. <laughs> no, I mean, Hugh Grant, I, mean, I, I don't know if my dad would probably need someone a little bit more rugged to play him in, in his movie of his life. Yeah. You know, he, he'd probably want someone like Tom Hardy or someone like that, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is, I, yeah, he, he is, he's not that good looking, but yeah, he, he would probably envisage someone a bit more yeah, rugged. I would yeah. say yeah, definitely not Hugh Grant. Yeah, definitely. We're definitely the, the opposite end of that scale. Yeah. And, and sorry, I know you grew up, you said in, in Lewis and thanks for, for saying that because I know that it was outside of Brighton and in another interview you did, I didn't actually pick up what the name of the city was when, and I know it was predominantly white. How did your mom, obviously she was very familiar with assimilation or she probably allowed herself to assimilate a little bit to English culture how was it for her to be in an environment where there was not as much access to what she was familiar to? I have to go out and say that I think Filipinos are the most adaptable people on the planet. Like you talk about assimilation. I think one of the issues and it co- what causes a lot of racial tension in the UK, certainly growing up with obviously 80s, 90s UK, I think the problem that certain ethnic groups or, or, or certain races or people from certain countries had a difficulty assimilating uh, or would prefer to stick with people from their own country. And that led to that kind of friction and, and a bit more of a fractious nature within their own communities, which I think is only natural. You know, I think if you're going to move thousands and thousands of miles away, that, that you're going to have a natural tendency to want to seek people out of the same colour, who eat the same food, who speak the same language. So I, I, sometimes I think that is a misguided sort of ideal but Filipinos are definitely amazing at assimilating, they, you know, get involved with the culture. Obviously, speaking the language was never really an issue. So she came to the UK being able to speak the language probably better than most English people, to be honest. You know, I have to think back to when I was sort of young, you know, um, formative years. There, there were certain times when I, I realised that we were different and that my mum was different. My mum was working as an auxiliary nurse in a nursing home. And I remember her coming back one day 
and she was called a nignog um, by a, a co-worker. And I remember co- her coming back and, and, and talking to my father about that. My dad was like, but look, you're not, you're not black, you know, you're from the Philippines, like, it doesn't make sense. So we were exposed to that ignorance from quite a young age. And like, we didn't, I didn't certainly didn't understand how that was even an issue. In my class, there was, ironically, there was an Iranian girl in my class. And I think we were the only people of color in my class of around 25 kids in my primary school. But I honestly didn't realize until maybe later on, I I sort of identified, okay, I am different to these other kids. And then you start to piece together, okay, so that's why my mum was called names in the nursing home when she was working. We were certainly aware of it, but probably not to the extent that I am now, like looking sort of from a more bird's eye perspective of our upbringing, like it was really white. <laughs> like I, I can't express to you how white growing up in, you know, leafy middle-class Sussex in, in the 90s, it's super, super white. A- another time I can remember playing football in the garden with my dad uh, and I can remember a girl, she was riding a bike with a couple of friends um, and she said, um, oh, the, the brown boys are out playing football. Uh, and you're like, the brown boys? And I can remember like, getting quite sort of angry about it because it is quite, uh, it's degrading. It, it is degrading from, you know, so I was probably 10, so my youngest brother Simon would have been five. It wasn't necessarily for me because I always felt that I could probably take it to a certain degree. But for my younger brothers to hear that and be sort of subjected to that, it took me aback, you know what I mean? Like, and obviously, I'm 37 now and I can still remember it. So, you know, it obviously had some sort of lasting impact. And that's just one example of, of many that I could, I could give you. So I was really aware of how that I was different, but I wasn't aware of maybe the connotations of what that meant or, or the implications of that with others, if that makes sense, until I've gotten older. And, I, and especially now with you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and other people being very vocal about voicing their opinions on race and, and racial relations. So, yeah, I, I guess in, in hindsight, I was probably quite lucky to be almost oblivious to it um, in, in many respects because of that assimilation. Like I just saw myself as a regular kid who played all the sports that my friends did and did all the things that my friends did. And none of them really caused me any, any issues. Very, very few, you know, issues regarding race with any of my close friends growing up ever, but certainly from people who weren't within my network, there there were times when that that was brought up and and I was very aware that, yeah, some people saw me as being very, very different. It sounds to me like around age nine and 10 is when you became aware of your own color or your own otherness, but you also had the space football in which you were excelling. And so do you, do you feel, well, football in general is such a universal sport, of course, and it is the bridge for so many people to connect with the other within England, within your own space and that cocoon you were in, how did football kind of either erase those differences or maybe bridge those differences for you, especially as, you know, a very, very advanced player. Yeah, I definitely think that helped 100%. We're quite outgoing, quite gregarious in terms of personality, my, my two brothers and I. And if you've ever met my mother, she is quite a larger than life personality. So I think had we even not been 
athletically inclined, you know, I think we probably would have been okay just because I think we're quite sociable people by nature. So I think we, we probably would have been able to, yeah, like I said, assimilate quite easily, irrespective of our sporting prowess. But I definitely think that helped. I definitely think that gives you an elevated status amongst your peers. If, you know, you can walk into a school playground and you're confident with a ball, you know, all of a sudden people looking at you and thinking, okay, I want to be this guy's friend or, okay, this guy's, you know, got something about him. And even as like a four, five-year-old, that, that, that is relevant, you know, without even knowing, you know, it gives you that reassurance as, as an individual, but it also gives you that confidence that, you know, your peers are looking at you as someone who, you know, has a skill in, in something that is highly valued in the UK. So, you know, as you grow growing up, and as you said, as you go through the process of, you know, playing on the school playground, yep, you're pretty good. Um, as you go into, you know, playing against other kids from the, the other parts of your town, yeah, you're still pretty good com- comparative to your, to your peers. You know, and then you start to expand and, you, you know, you, you, you go on this journey because you think, right, well, this is something I really enjoy and I'm really excelling at it. You know, it just gives you confidence as an individual. So, no, it was definitely a vehicle to enable me to, to gain some personal confidence. It, again, it, it wasn't really something that I was, I was aware of, but I wasn't really conscious of it, if that kind of makes sense. I just did it because I love football. I didn't do it because I felt like I needed to make friends or I, I needed to, to break down any barriers. There weren't any barriers as such, or certainly none that, at that age that I was particularly aware of. There were more as I got older, and I was definitely more aware of, of how different I was in, in certain footballing contexts and football environments. But yeah, growing up, that really wasn't, it really wasn't the issue. I just played football because I loved it. And as a byproduct of that, it seemingly you know, reflected well on me. And I became more confident in other aspects of my life, whether it be with you know, personal relationships, in the classroom. I think a lot of that stuff goes hand in hand. So I, I just think football was just a, a way in which I could express myself. And fortunately, it, it had a positive impact in other aspects of my life. We'll return to our show and hear more from our guest in just a moment. So, and there was a lot of things I was like, wow, this is the first person I can really identify with because for sure he's getting racially abused, for sure he's, you know, he's different to his peers, but is you know, in a sport and excelling, I can identify with that. This show is brought to you by Podcast Network Asia, powered by Podmetrics. Podmetrics takes care of the details so we can focus on making the best content for you. Visit podmetrics.co and sign up for free. Use code PARTIALLYPINOY. I totally get that. And the research wasn't the same back then, but now we know how much of a positive effect playing sports has in in, in general and, in, and then with things you would never think about either. And so it's amazing that you were able to pursue something you absolutely loved and, and kind of almost be yourself and find yourself. And then as a consequence, that made you even bigger than what one might be at that age, just by virtue of playing this amazing sport, which is great. Tell me about your exposure to Filipino culture 
growing up? How was it mostly through food? How did you even, you know, decipher, you know, when you're mixed, you just are what you are. There's the Persian food and there's the Filipino food and it's no big deal. Same for you, I'm sure. But when did you kind of realize, oh, our food isn't the same. There's more of this, less of that. And then how did that affect how you built friendships and whether or not you were conscious of, uh, you know, these little aspects of who you were? Yeah, I agree. Most of it through food. And for me, food is food, right? It wasn't, I, I had this conversation with my wife the other day. She said, um, oh, you know, we, we, we're going to have Chinese food for lunch, but we're also going to have it for dinner. I said, yeah, but in China, that's just food. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's not like, are we having Chinese food for lunch? And they don't say that, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty much the same with, with us. Like, it wasn't Filipino food. It was just, that's what we ate. So we didn't, again, when you're in your own environment, your own cocoon, you don't, really know it's any different until you start going to other people's houses and it's like i don't want to say bland but it's like stock english food yeah and you're like oh okay like they don't eat rice with a lot of their meals you know like and my dad was quite well traveled so my dad had done a lot of traveling so i think he was quite good with different foods he had a different sort of um i said palate to, to, to maybe your, your run-of-the-mill English man. So I think that was important. I think that was, he was unable to sort of assimilate to my mom's because my mom was the cook. You know, she would, it was very archetypal in terms of mom's dad at home looked after the kids, dad went to work. You know, she would be there cooking and, and yeah, I mean, like your, your standard Filipino dishes, you know, chicken adobo. But I, 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 I've got to backtrack a little bit. I'm not a massive Filipino food lover, if I'm being honest. Where my mum was really good, was she'd be great at cooking all kinds of cuisine. So it was more through the cooking of the food and the love of being in the kitchen, that kind of cucina lifestyle that was more, I would say, Filipino. It wasn't necessarily the actual Filipino food, but the fact that, you know, mum was in the kitchen cooking up amazing food and, and sharing the love through food. I think that's a very Filipino trait more than actually, you know, we weren't eating like sisig or anything like that. You know, like it wasn't, that wasn't really a common dish that we would have in the house, you know, lumpia, you know, spring rolls, Asian cuisine, Thai cuisine. We would have a lot of that, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was necessarily always Filipino. Um, and yeah, you definitely noticed it when you would go to other people's houses and it would just be like sausage and chips or, you know, just pretty, boring pasta whatever so yeah more through the love of cooking necessarily than than and, and that sort of aspect to it more than necessarily the actual filipino dishes which i i've only come to sort of more appreciate since we moved to the philippines if i'm being honest so not what came out of the kitchen but sort of the effort that went into what was coming out of the kitchen definitely yeah definitely definitely that love through food you know sh you know making sure that that meal demonstrates how much your mum loves you. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's a really Filipino trait. Um, we did other things like we would go to like the, 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 the Filipino community um, events, you know, they would have a lot of those in London and we would go to those from time to time. But if I'm being honest, like there was one or two other Filipinos who lived in our town, you know, a handful of other people from different countries but that was about it. So again, going back to your assimilation point, a lot of times, you know, my mum would be great at cooking British food, better than most British people, to be honest, you know, like roast dinners and stuff like that. She'd knock up a, a mean roast dinner. So 
yeah, we, we were lucky that we were able to to get the benefits of of all of these different cultures, and, and Mum was great at, at, at you know giving us the opportunity to sample those different dishes. Yeah, she had sort of mastered that that part of how she wanted to express her love. Definitely, um, yeah. Yeah. So one thing that was a surprise to me, because Persian food is very complex. It's an all day affair. Filipino food, not as complex, but, you know, lunches are a big deal. Dinner is a big deal. I don't know how it is in England, but in the U.S., lunches are absolutely not a big deal at home. And so I saw people eating things like, like I call them two ingredient dinners, peanut butter and jelly, mac and cheese. And it was just so fascinating because I would never pass in a Persian home, certainly not in a Filipino home. It has to be hot. <laughs> Every meal has to be hot temperature wise. Um, and so, yeah, those differences in food are pretty amazing to think about. To what degree did your dad embrace your mom's culture? You said he's well-traveled. He you know, obviously accepted her. Yeah, I think obviously we he was quite keen to make sure that we understood that we were you know filipino you know that we weren't just british um how did that manifest that's quite a difficult one i would say because if can i be frank here i uh, there was a part of me obviously that almost didn't embrace it as we when we were quite young um i would even say into my teenage years because it's it's, it's something that, especially when you grow up and all your friends are white, I wouldn't say I longed to be white. That's, that's not it. Like, I always wanted to be different. You always want to, I've always wanted to stand out. So that's, that's not, I had no problem with being different. But there was definitely that element of, like, if, if things were brought up in, um, in the classroom, for example, um, about, you know, like, where's your family from? Like, what's your ethnic diversity? And everyone in the class is like, yeah, okay, you know, my dad's from Wales or, you know, my, my, that's, that's not really culturally diverse there. I can even remember, this is, this is an interesting story. I, I remember we did, a, we did a, we had a history class. I must have been about nine or ten. And they put like a, 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 a movie on, on the screen and um, it was only a short like 30-minute TV show. And then the teacher stopped it and she said, oh, how do you know that this wasn't filmed in the, in, in the, in the 40s during the war? And then we, none of us, we, we, we said, oh, well, it's, you know, it's in colour, like you can see, you know, so it's obviously not, you know, there's cars in the background, so it's obviously not. And she said, yeah, but if you notice, there's, there's, there's kids of colour in the depiction of, this, of the war. So she was saying, like, and I remember, I can remember her pointing to the Iranian girl, Nava, and she said, there's no one in... Nava, who looks like you in this, in this, in this TV show. And I was thinking, I remember thinking like, wow, yeah, she's right. Like that, at that time, it would have just been all white people. So we are different. Like I remember being next to me like, wow, yeah, we're different. Like we're different. And it almost not shame, not shame, but like understanding like, okay, us two are on this side of the classroom here and everyone else is together on the opposite side of the spectrum. And um, yeah, so there was an element of that for me that I wasn't wholly comfortable with that, if I'm being honest. Um, and it took me, uh, actually, to be honest, until into my 20s was when I really started to embrace it. More so when I started to come out to the Philippines and play for the national team. That was really when I really embraced it. But up until that point, I probably saw myself more as being English and, and being quite white. Yeah, I mean, in many respects, like I played football. 
all my idols were white people, white footballers. You know what I mean? There wasn't any, there wasn't anyone really on the scene who kind of looked like me, who I could aspire to be like. The first one really was, um, was a guy called Prince Nassim Hamed, who was a boxer. And he was, uh, he was from Yemen. I was probably 14, 15, and he became world champion boxer. British, born and raised in Britain, but he was dark skinned, you know, and he was brash. He was confident. And I was quite a confident kid. Um, so there was a lot of things I was like, wow, this is the first person I can really identify with because for sure he's getting racially abused. For sure he's, you know, he's different to his peers, but is, you know, in a sport and excelling. I can identify with that. So he was probably the first person who I can recall being kind of of my makeup per se. Yeah. Around how old was that? I was probably 14, 15 when he started to burst onto the scenes. And he was probably like four or five years older than me. He was really young as a world champion. I can remember thinking, wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's different. Like I don't, you know, it gave me a little more sense of like, it's okay to be different. You know what I mean? It's okay. Cause he was very, he would always go in with his British flag and his Yemen flag. Like he'd always embraced both parts of his culture. And I really liked that. Because at the time I was a bit like, I, I didn't want to stand out that much. You know what I mean? I didn't want to embrace almost that, that aspect of my, cult, of my culture. And people knew, you know what I mean? I, I wasn't like ashamed of it. You know, people knew I was in the Philippines. You can tell I'm different. But I wasn't like, you know, didn't have Filipino flags. I didn't know any, too much about the culture. So, yeah, that was difficult. I remember my dad always being like, you need to be really proud of your heritage because Filipinos by nature, like fighters throughout history, you know, like, you know, from Lapu-Lapu to Bonifacio to obviously fighting the, the, the Marcos regime, like that, that there is that element of re- having real fighting spirit uh, amongst the... So I think my dad was really keen for us to, to sort of be aware of that, like that, and should be proud of that aspect. I remember him telling me that. They should be proud of that aspect of your heritage. But there's other things we missed out on, obviously, like things like language, like we don't speak the language. It wasn't really spoken in, in the home, which is a, actually a negative to Filipinos being willing to assimilate. Actually, if you look across, I don't know if you speak Tagalog, but yeah, um, you do. So I, was, I, was, I spent the first 12 years of my life there and I actually also speak Farsi. It was, it was, it's a total blessing. So I get it. I get it. Um, yeah, real blessing. And, and now, like, but even if you went across the, 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 the Philippine national team, most of the guys who are born and raised abroad do not speak the language. Very, very few. And, and those who do, I'm so jealous of them. So jealous. I'm like, oh, gosh, I wish I had that aspect of the culture drummed into me from a young age. But yeah, I mean, I can't complain. Like, we had a great upbringing, but it does make a difference. And then when did you realize there were other people like you because like i mentioned earlier philip as a filipino iranian felt very alone in that i think i knew one person when i was spent the, those first 12 years in the philippines a family friend of ours we weren't close and of course nobody in the u.s and i discovered the philippine national soccer team and i was like what and then i followed a couple of them and that led me to another and then I, I, I didn't know that we could feel so close that we could just follow each other by virtue of just being Filipino Iranian. I think that's how much the need is. I will tell you when I spoke with Misaf, he said that his sister actually ended up marrying a Filipino Iranian as well. And then I interviewed someone here whose dad is Filipino, mom is Irish. She ended up also marrying 
um, a man whose dad is Filipino, mom is Irish, very close, you know, closely linked to Irish, not just, you know, Irish American. And so, sorry, close to Ireland. So when did you kind of discover there were people like you mixed in this way? And then how did that feel to you? Uh, it was a bit weird. Probably not until I joined the national team was when I really, there, there were people just like me. Right. So I was aware that there was Filipinos, there's Filipinos everywhere. You know, you, you go to a mall in Dubai, you go to the Maldives on some crazy island. Oh, there's another, there's Filipinos everywhere. So I was aware of that aspect. Uh, my mum would often meet her Filipino friends who had married English people and then they had kids. But most of them were different. I didn't play sport into different things. So I didn't really identify with them so much. When I joined the national team, I was like the first one really who came from a mixed heritage, but raised abroad to, to join the national team. After that, it was like year on year on year, it was a new guy popping up, exactly the same scenario as us. You know, Phil and James Young husband came in. They were from an hour and a half away from me, same situation, brought, brought up in leafy Surrey. Most of their friends are white, went to, you know, white predominantly school, you know, obviously a professional club. So their background is very, very similar experiences, similar. Rob Gear grew up about another hour on from, from, from where they live. So probably about two, two and a half hours from where we live. Exactly the same story. I think it's also lucky because we have a lot of, football is quite a small community in England. So everyone knows everyone. Um, so you all know a lot of the same players would have played on the same teams as their teammates and such. So we'd always have that common bond. That was only the time really that I realized that there are other people just like me. I knew there's Filipinos, you know, everywhere. That's just how they are. But until we started going with the national team, that's when I realized, oh, there's loads. And then as I moved here, what was really funny was it's not confined to football at all. Then you meet the basketball guys and yeah, there's loads of people with, with, with that kind of background. You know, they grew up in America, uh, but with a Filipino mother, American father. Yeah, and there's loads, there's loads. And it, has, there's so many people with a very similar story to you, just slightly different. You know, it might be, you know, that there's a different sport or it might be they grew up in a different country or it might be that, you know, the dynamic is just ever so slightly different. But the experiences are very, very similar. And I think that's a nice way to sort of knit that community together. And that's why, like, if you actually look at it, we're all pretty close. You know, we're all, we all, work, you know, you talk about me, you said like my brother and me, say like hang out quite regularly, like even like little things like talk about business. It's not just confined to football. You know, there are other av avenues and aspects of their lives that they can collaborate on. And I think it is that kind of shared community because th those experiences have been shared as well. Um, not just on the football field. Um, you know, we, there is an assumed, you know, level of, right, well, they've probably been through similar hardships. They've, they've had to deal with, with certain issues in the same way that I have. So I think that's always a nice common thread and, and, and a way to bond each other without having to necessarily speak about it or, or, or have to explain yourself, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's a complete trust. And, and I'd say Misar went as far as saying, my friend, all my friends are mixed period. Like, that's it. Like, that is, these are the people I feel the most comfortable around. On our next episode with Chris Greatwich. Yeah. Does your mom get any credit for, for this? Be, because I, 
you know, in that story, she is the hero. She, in a way, opened up this door for you and there, there needed to be a first one. And you were that. Does she, does she recognize that? Do, you, do other people know, oh, it's actually mom, great witch, who made this happen? I don't know how well told that story is. Yeah, maybe she doesn't get the credit that she deserves, but maybe this podcast will go some way to rectifying that. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.